What is a smart city? Our civilization has reached a point where we can no longer think bigger. We now have to think smarter. All around the world, there are transformative cities doing incredible things, and it's time to sit up and listen. It's time to make a difference for ourselves and for our planet. Hello and welcome to Smart City Diaries, the podcast where the phrase, with all due respect, is taken very literally. Now, if you didn't see our first episode, or if you're not familiar with us in general, Smart City Diaries was supposed to be a TV show. And then there was a global pandemic, and now it's a podcast. There'll still be a TV show later, but the point is, life came at all of us fast, right? So, I am Ana Acosta. I am here in Los Angeles, California, and I'm co-hosting with my lovely mother, Debbie Acosta, who is up in the Bay Area. And we are here basically to talk about what the hell is a smart city. Small topic, right? We're talking about artificial intelligence. We're talking about self-driving cars, right? We're talking about telecommunication and infrastructure, not just broadband infrastructure, but also electrical infrastructure. We're talking about how cities communicate with their citizens on on apps, on next door, on and, and whether they're doing it in a way that actually is smart. So there's a lot of different things for us to talk about. And I hope that in this process, we actually redefine what smart is and what it means to be a smart city. So this week, what we are going to talk to you about is broadband infrastructure. And if you're thinking, now, Anna, what is broadband infrastructure? Anna is also thinking that, so don't worry, but we're going to get there. But first, I just want to kind of download with my mother here. Mom, how's it going this week? What stories do you have for the people? Well, like many people, I have an aging mom who unfortunately cannot live on her own anymore. And she's suffering from dementia, which is a disease, which perhaps people don't know as well. So it's and it's the kind of disease where you don't get better. So she's not going to be able to she can't live in her home anymore. She's now living in a congregate care facility where she's getting excellent help. And she's really doing as well as she possibly can under the circumstances. But my sisters and I all got together yesterday just to look at her stuff, right, to figure out what to do with it, knowing that she's never going to be able to move back into her home again. And, you know, you just think about this playing out with thousands of people across the country who, you know, unexpectedly have died because of COVID or they're facing aging parents. And we're all taking a look at, you know, end of life. And what do you do with all the stuff that's been accumulated? And it's, it's, I guess it was kind of a reminder to us that how important it us it is for us all to not get too attached to our stuff because man the we dark sure can't side take of it consumerism, with us right well, well there are many dark it, sides of really it's hard to find a light side of consumerism but well it's it's hard and and the thing is it, mom's second husband who was from Holland and he brought all this beautiful china from Holland from his former w- wife his first wife collected it and i have to tell you it's just heartbreaking because your generation doesn't care about now, this hold stuff. On now, right? I might. Okay. I'm. I mean, Tell I don't me know wrong. about my generation, but I might. Like these are. If these are. If these are family oh, heirlooms. I mean, not even. And I don't say heirlooms in the valuable sense. I am talking about the sentiment sense. I there's. I, I would not assume. I, I I would not assume that because of my generation, I do or do not care about these things. That's all. Uh, that's. I mean. Well. It. 
<laughs> I'm glad I said something because what, I really did assume that. Well, no. Yeah, uh, well, mom, all we do. Uh, uh, that Our you don't thing like is nostalgia. Stuff. Well, okay. There is, and it's fair to absolutely say that there, especially with, I think it's a little bit bigger with Gen Z, the push against consumerism, bless them. Um, mm-hmm. But it definitely, there are hints of it with millennials, especially as younger ones. But there's a difference between not wanting stuff and the sentimental family stuff, because there's also a big push with my generation for wanting to reconnect with like your cultural roots. Because we came out of the whole boomer obsession with the melting pot and assimilation and all that, which you and I mean, both of my parents, dad comes from Mexican immigrants and you were an immigrant. And the whole thing from both of your parents was assimilate, assimilate, assimilate. And so and my uh, there's a lot of young there's a lot of millennials and Gen Z people who are trying to now reconnect with their cultures. Just strictly. And it's literally just because I get why you guys made the call you made. Like, I understand why some of the sacrifices were made because that was what, that was the situation you were in. That was what felt safer. It was safer to assimilate to American whiteness. But I would not, uh, so all I'm saying is just because we don't necessarily like stuff as much, don't assume that the cultural stuff doesn't mean, it means a lot to us because for a lot of us, it feels like those, like, Items might be all we have of the ties to where we came from. Well, you know what? I'm glad we're having this conversation. Yeah. I didn't know. And and let me just say that that, that you know, distancing ourselves from our culture didn't oh, just know. start with me. Uh, uh, I remember that my mother told me the story because I was often asked her, why don't why didn't you teach us to speak Dutch? When we were growing up, it would have been so valuable to have that second language. And and she told me that when she took me to play on the playgrounds, you know, maybe I was two, three years old, and she, she was concerned that I would not be able to communicate with the other kids because, of course, she didn't know that kids will learn other languages like they're drinking water. Awesome. They're like sponges. So, um, and so probably I carried over some of that. She didn't emphasize her Dutchness to me all that much in the Dutch traditions, and I didn't do it for you. Um, and I regret that. And I, I mean, that's what you do, especially in this country. The whole emphasis is always becoming American. It's always been very much about we must take right. away the things that make you you, so you can now be one of us. Great Grandpa Cohen became Grandpa Coleman because he couldn't get a job in film as a Jewish man. And my uh, great-grandpa Dell, who was getting into Mexican vaudeville, the reason they, they, and I mean, he couldn't have passed for white if his life depended on it. And yet, no, they did everything that they could to align with whiteness because that was the only way to get a freaking job. So it's like, right. yeah, we, yeah, we could talk sure about that forever. <laughs> And we'll we'll come back up to that because it's true. He he literally, when he moved out of the barrio, his relatives criticized him for being, uh, you know, for for rejecting and his heritage. And they weren't wrong. So I've never been in those shoes, and I know that I can't speak to what no. decisions I would have made in those shoes, but it probably would have been the same ones. Um. But so we and we could talk about. But yeah. so the moral of the story is. Just because we reject consumerism on a larger scale than our older peers 
does not mean that we don't like the sentimental cultural stuff. <laughs> All right. I'll keep that in mind. Um, and meanwhile, down in Southern California, you guys have been experiencing, oh my God, it's in already May, yes. fire May season. May was yes. the kickoff of fire season. So we had two that I'm currently aware of. And I say currently aware of because it is completely possible new fires have popped up in the last five minutes that I've been talking even. It's, it's Southern California fire season. I didn't even think about it when I said, oh, fire season has started. I didn't think about the fact that it's only May. And even in my lifetime, fire season used to start July. It was the very beginning. But even then, it was August. It was September. And that September, October were always the real danger months. But now it's just, I just instantly metabolize someone who's lived in California my whole life and knows this is not how it's always been. I just instantly metabolized, oh, it's May and the fires are starting. because, And so that's where, that's where we're at. Luckily, this wasn't a gender reveal fire. It was just arson, but (sighs) (laughs) it was just arson. It was just arson. Oh, great. (sighs) So already we're starting with that. So the fire season in California is off to a very, very not good start. And I'm sure PG&E and Edison are going to do nothing to help the situation. Moving right along. That's actually a great segue. Let's do the news. In the news. I can hardly wait to see what you've come up with this this week. Same. All right. So for this week's news stories, Google has done it again. (laughs) On Tuesday, they revealed a cutting-edge new dermatology app, which for those of you who don't know, dermatology is about skin. So your dermis. Yeah. (laughs) Science. I'm good at it. Um, And since Google is a major tech company, I know that's a shocking piece of information here. But the question is, what could go wrong? Vice is reporting this week that this app, which was uh, developed to demonstrate the, quote, efficacy of using deep learning to recognize skin conditions. So my first question was, what is deep learning? Deep learning, <laughs> it's an AI function, so again, artificial intelligence function, that imitates the human brain and process data and creating patterns for use in decision-making, which to me sounds like what we tend to think of colloquially as smart. So it's smart learning for tech, like yep. literally for the actual tech itself to learn. Um, and so at this point, Mom, I, I'm just wondering if you can sort of guess where I might be going. Can you guess what the pitfall of Google's uh, dermatology app, just knowing what you know about Google, and again, not a gotcha, I really want to see if you can, I just want to see if you can guess. Wait, 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 wait. The AI does not take into account uh, gradations of skin color? And here's the thing. Yes. So I'll, I'll explain a little bit more. I will explain a little, but I just... I just want to demonstrate how bad the problem is to the class where when a lovely but very white white lady is able to guess before I get to the crux of the story what the problem is here. So so if oh you guessed God. they forgot about black and brown people, you'd be right. But it's also a little there's a new there's another layer to this because one of the biggest problems and the reason that liberals the term liberal gets decried by leftists especially younger ones is because this is emblematic of what liberals do. If you think representation is about virtue signaling and it's basically just about appearing to do the right thing, that's where you fall into pitfalls like what Google did here. Because, in short, the app is based on data from a database that was only 3.5% compromised of folks with brown, dark brown, or black skin. 
And while they claim and they and while they claim that the app is 87% accurate of doing its job for black patients, that analysis is based just on ethnicity, not on skin tone. Now, why does that matter? That matters because look at me. I am incredibly pasty. In terms of race, I am mixed. But if you use someone like me as a representation for what Latina is, and I'm supposed to represent everyone in that group with all of their skin tones, guess who gets shafted? It is not possible to imagine that with three and a half percent representation, people of color in that. And I'm assuming that was. Yeah, that's that's every and that is that was literally not. So the three point five percent is about skin tone, not race. So the three point that's dark skinned people only had three point five percent representation. You can imagine how much that tech is going to fail them. And Google's response to basically concerns about how it's an incomplete technology, which is essentially what it is, was they said, this is not intended to be substituted for diagnosis and people shouldn't use it to diagnose, but they're going to. (laughs) What's the point then? Why did you release the app? Google, we learn nothing and no, we don't care. That was uh, Ah. the latest. And to me, saying, oh, well, this app is not intended to be used for self-diagnosis. That's sort of like the CDC now saying, well, no, that's not what we meant about not everyone can. Some people still have to wear masks. What did you think was going? Anyway, I'm not even going to open up that can of worms. Yeah. Next news story. I love the ocean. I grew up near the ocean. Just something about being near the ocean soothes me. And historically, that has involved me occasionally going in the ocean. And thanks to this story from the L.A. Times, I don't know that I will ever go in the ocean again. Oh, dear. And here's the here's okay. This falls into the category of things you can't unsee. Basically, a drone photographer named Charles Guana, who and if I mispronounced that, my sincerest apologies. I'm not good at names. Um, Who runs the YouTube account The Malibu Artist? No spaces, just The Malibu Artist. He's a drone photographer who spends his time cataloging marine activity off the coast. And the short version is sharks, specifically great white sharks, are everywhere. Like he's got all these images where there'll be someone swimming and the four feet away, there's just a couple of um, sharks just chilling. The people in the water can't see them because just the way the light refracts and like. And so the point is, and this is a common thing that keeps us. So the point is they are everywhere all the time. And so what that naturally means is this has always been the case. It's just that the only difference now is that we see them. And so while I realize that from a rational so this actually should make me feel safer because it means that statistically speaking, they really don't attack humans. If they're always hanging out near us, the attacks are so negligible that this should make me feel safer. On the other hand, I grew up watching Jaws and this is not a rational fear. Obviously, it's not na- rational. Dun, dun. I, I'm dun, saying dun. on the air, it's dun, not dun, rational dun, dun, that dun, I will retain. But I'm what are you going to do? We're only human. And I just I can't unsee these images. So uh, on the one hand, should make me feel better. On the other hand, f- fuck that. So thanks to drone photography, I will enjoy the ocean from the shore. <laughs> this is not to demonize or create fear around sharks. I'm just saying as a human being who has a lot of stuff to unpack on that subject, I'm just going to stay out of the ocean for a while. That's all. <laughs> So that's, uh, yeah. And so the last story 
I have here, I would like to talk about the Colonial Pipeline shutdown that happened on the East Coast last week. I think it was last week. Time is made up. The pandemic has completely illustrated that. I think it was last week. Of course, we don't know when last week will be by the time we release this. But the point is... (laughs) But it'll still be relevant. We know that. We're having fun here. Um, So basically, this was the one where the story we were told initially was hackers shut down the colonial pipeline, stoking a terror about a gas shortage and generally causing grief for their for anyone on the East Coast relying on this pipeline to get their gas. Um, So as it turns out, the actual cause for the shutdown wasn't the hack. The hack did happen. I'm not so that there was a hack. The Uh hack. But the shutdown of the pipeline was not because of the hack. It was an internal decision made by the private company Colonial running the pipeline because they were worried about how they were going to collect payments because the hack targeted their billing system. And this was originally reported by what? Kim Zetter of Zero Day, and it was confirmed by CNN a few days later. Um, and so it... Why are we not so hearing short, about this? Colonial was concerned they wouldn't get paid right when hackers targeted their corporate IT network, so they turned the damn utility off for everyone who depended on it. And as someone who lives in California and remembers when last year PG&E and Edison decided that because they hadn't done the fire infrastructure they needed to do, they were just going to turn it off, turn the power off for all their customers. I'm well-versed in how private companies that run utility grids do this. I don't understand the utility side of it because I'm a regular-ass person. But I understand that something about money being the reason that these companies get to just decide that these utilities, which are core functions of how we survive, that it just gets turned off because they didn't want to pay the dollar amount that it took to solve the problem. To me, that is not an acceptable outcome. And it is, you're right, it's being completely underreported. It it. It, it's it's but it's oh. how does so, this make you I'm feel as a calm. former local government official mom <laughs> it it this is emblematic of the problem that cities and regions have across this country because so much of what we call right. utility utilities which are things that we need to to Live our so like everyday plumbing, lives, electricity, broadband, right? These are now cons- these are considered utilities, but they're mostly in the hands of the private sector, which means the private sector insists that they must be able to, in the case of PG&E, provide a return to their shareholders or a colonial, perhaps it's a private pipeline, I don't know, that they believe that they can deprive access to customers because they're not making sufficient money off of it. And this is exactly the perfect segue, frankly, to the whole subject of infrastructure and why the Biden administration is is focused on a two point two trillion. We hope he sticks to that big number um, infrastructure package because cities in fact, when cities try to co- to 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 
to develop a course of action or goals for their citizens around electricity, around things like access to the Internet, because it's so often controlled by private companies who insist that they can't do things because they can't because make money off of it, because it's it's profits over people. And as a result, people's ability to to live their best lives are completely negatively impacted. So cities say, you know what, if you're not going to do it, then we're going to do it ourselves. And there are a number of states who have actually outlawed the ability of their cities to legally create broadband infrastructure for, to benefit their communities. Color me unsurprised. Actually, we want to empower our listeners to be able to approach their city officials at the city level, at the state level, at the federal level to say, we demand this type of infrastructure. We need it to be able to pursue our best lives in this country. And we need it for economic development purposes. I mean, if you hear nothing else, we absolutely need it for that. past, infrastructure has always meant bridges, roads. Like sewers, that's infrastructure, electric lines, right? All of that stuff. All of that stuff, right? And there are many cities across the country who actually own their own electrical um, and other utility infrastructure, which has made it much easier for them to then move into owning their own broadband systems. For cities, and that's most cities who don't own their own utilities, but actually it's run by private private, uh, corporations, it's much more problematic trying to to reach their, the goals that they have set for themselves around the around modernizing their networks. So let's just go right to broadband infrastructure. Anna, do you remember anything about getting on the internet for the first time? I'm going to take everyone on a journey now. It's a little house off of Walnut Street in Oakland. And I believe, is it a gateway computer? Is it IBM? I don't know, but it's old, boxy, and slow, and that weird, depressing, off-white color that all computers used to be. That lovely dial-up tone fills the air. (laughs) And then you realize that somebody is trying to use the phone right now, and oh, wait, you have to start this system all over again. Now, keep in mind, at this point, I'm about four years old. So this memory is... It's there, but I just have to, I was very, very small and very quickly we moved into the next iteration. I didn't have, I don't have many dial-up memories. However, I do have them, which is kind of the biggest difference, honestly, between millennials and Gen Z is the absence of, Gen Z had, they never. They never had that experience, right? So literally, as you were trying to connect to the internet and no, you couldn't make a phone call sure at the same time. It was you were one on the or the internet. other. You had to make and a choice. And there was no texting either. Right? So if you wanted it, com- the phone calls were, there were, right. it was a much bigger problem then than it might seem now if you didn't have that experience. Cause everyone called on the phone. I mean, that's you what could, you did. Right. And we didn't have voicemail <laughs> necessarily. We didn't necessarily, it was like, right, that was a luxury. So you couldn't tell if people, if they, would just, yeah. they would just get a busy signal. Oh, so, man. But that was the earliest iteration of using wireline, right? So wireline? existing te- 
wireline, wired basically wires oh. on lines connecting houses, right? Is that why it's called being online? It online. Wow. There you got it. So it's literally online and it's using the existing uh, traditional copper telephone lines. So in the beginning, they had to compete, but then they figured out how to use multiplexing so that they could literally carve out since different line so that DSL meant, oh, I don't have to, I don't have to sacrifice using the telephone for getting on the internet. So back in the days of dial-up, internet wasn't considered something that was necessary for everyday living. In fact, it was a toy. Uh, we really didn't know what it was that we were getting into, but it was kind of fun. You kind of randomly got to get onto it. Sometimes there was chat rooms and you could get in there and you could figure out uh, what interesting people were talking about or maybe even dumb people were talking about. It didn't matter. It was not an experience that we'd ever had before. So so dial-up was is something that was just for people who could afford it. So it wasn't it infrastructure yet. Not even close. It was mm. ancillary to the infrastructure, right? Because it used existing infrastructure to make something more fun happen. With DSL, other things started to happen. And that's when you started to see gaming because you could upload and download and you could. But I think that's also when the big frustrations already really started to set in with latency. It was one thing if you're just waiting for an Internet a website to come up. It's a whole nother thing if you're doing if you're doing, you know, things, real right. time playing, if you're actually doing things on it. So the advent of DSL was a was a game changer. And, and it, be, it started down. It started creating in the Internet or access to the Internet internet as something that you had to have in order to succeed in life. And here we are. Fast forward from the days of dial-up, today we have a number of ways that we can actually access the internet in much faster ways. We have cable modems, we have wireless, we have satellites, we even are experimenting with broadband over power line. And every one of these forms of telecommunication, regardless if it's equipment or technology, is all backhauled to what we call fiber optics. And that's the subject of today's conversation. What is fiber optics? It's glass. What do you mean it's glass? So I'm actually going to show you right here. This Are you is serious? a strand. You so just had that? Tip. Why did you I, just I, have that? So if you're listening to this and you're not watching the visual version, mom is actually holding up. I mean, it's a piece of apparently fiber. Like it's got this, it looks like a tube and there's all these little wires, which are evidently made out of bendable glass coming out of it. And you're just going to have to take our word for it or check this out on YouTube later. But uh, yeah, it's, she's, she actually just has a piece of, I get fiber, right? That's what that, she just has a piece of it this just is, hanging out on her desk. Yeah. Like a this normal a person, like something that human right. beings do. This is one of my show and tell pieces at all times because people don't know what fiber optics are. And I really like to show them what it is. So this is a cable. So this black part right here. This is my is a childhood. Cable. This is a cable. And this will typically be nested usually under the, under the street. They drill it. Uh, they drill a conduit, uh, a, usually a copper conduit. They put this inside it and wrapped and it wraps all these little strands. These are plastic strands. And this, this particular one is probably about mm, 48 strands. It's not a very big one. And each one of these little tiny 
fibers that you see coming out is actually glass. Glass is bendy? Glass, uh, yeah. The way they've done it is glass is bendy. It's flexible. Uh, my, my brain does not like that. I mean, I see it, but my brain doesn't like it. This has been a game changer because glass does not deteriorate in the way that copper does. It also, because it's glass and can carry light, because it can convert data to light, it just sends light everywhere. I mean, it can send data across the world in, in seconds. So what what basically has happened now is that everything, almost everything is now what we call backhauled to fiber. Okay. Doesn't matter what kind of network or telecommunication equipment you have. Even if you still have copper coming into your house, this is how you get it. You have DSL somewhere in that system. So pretend I don't know what backhauling is. Basically, it's the uh, think of it as the baseline. It's the it's the everything goes back to that basic infrastructure. Then there's wireless. So all wireless broadband connects buildings to the internet using a radio link. Today, what we have is the rollout of the fifth generation also of wireless. Also known as your vaccine, 5G. get vaccinated. <laughs> yeah, I haven't found that sensor in my shot yet that says oh, don't worry. It's connected in there. automatically it's in there. to the internet. But Got that 5G upgrade. Another thing. But what's really revolutionary about this is that it can actually carry um, gigabit speeds. And why does that matter? Well, that matters in the world of Internet of Things. So your watch connected to the Internet, um, your refrigerator. Yes, your refrigerator. Why is my refrigerator connected to the Internet? So self-driving cars and all of those things that are connected to the Internet and, and 3D printing. Well, that machines. makes sense. Right. So that you could literally uh, with on a wireless connection, be able to control the manufacture of something on a 3D machine that's thirty five hundred miles away. So that the advent of 5G actually makes a is a big difference. And it's a huge leap forward, especially when we start talking about self-driving cars and those kinds of that, that kind of right. deployment of tech. Right. So it's 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 revolutionary what's going on with wireless. And five years ago, we never could have anticipated this kind of uh, deployment. So satellites, another form of wireless broadband. Right. So you see some of the um, satellite companies that used to just send us TV. Right right? We now are able to get um, broadband out of. Now, it's, it's latency is, is not really very good yet, although SpaceX has latency just launched like a beta lag, program, right? one of Anna's favorite companies. Yeah, latency okay. is that swirly-swirly, right? It's because the data is not all connecting all right. up at the same time. SpaceX, one of Anna's favorite companies, well, she doesn't mind the company, but the owner, has launched a beta program uh, called Starlink to deliver high-speed, low-latency internet access with speeds reported to be competitive with cable modems and fiber, right? So that's really exciting if we can, because that means that if you are in a rural area in the middle of the country where we can't get a wire line to you because it's too expensive and you're really too far away for the new 5G networks, which require... Um, which required those sensors to be uh, um, linked every 800 feet. So every 800 feet uh, for 5G, you have to have a sensor on top of that pole to connect that mesh. Create that, that seems mesh like network. it's perhaps not the most practical thing in 
in the world. But it seems that it might sure. have possibilities, and they've actually launched it, uh, a beta test, but they do warn you that right now you may get speeds up to 50 or up to 150 megabits per second, which translated means for the average user, 25 megabits per second, if you're lucky. So they're advertising. Is, is that good? I I feel like that's supposed to, that number yes. is supposed to trigger recognition in my brain of whether this is a good I have no frame of reference. So is 25 is that good? 25 megabits per second is almost almost useless in an IoT world, but the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, which is the federal agency that so they has regulate. jurisdiction over okay internet, they regulate it, has stated that 25 uh, megabits per second is um, should be available to every citizen in the United States. So it's functionally useless, and yet that's the baseline? And even that bar isn't getting met? Is that, that that's, that's the gist? It is useful for people who are simply surfing the internet, doing research, and maybe downloading the occasional video. But if you want to upload anything or do serious gaming, 25 okay. megabits per second, you will have the serious so swirly, the swirly, the latency. of the wireless connection community. Good for some uh, rudimentary yeah. things, so, but got it. Okay. Then finally, something that hasn't caught on yet, but is still being developed, is broadband over power lines. So there's emerging tech that enables delivery of broadband over existing low and medium voltage power lines, right? Speeds are comparable to DSL and cable modem. Well, almost every house in America has an electrical line right. going to their house, right? If you could deliver this over the power line, That'd be revolutionary. Because it's taking advantage of existing infrastructure. Because the one thing that even... Even I know is that one of the biggest problems with any kind of big shift and tech shift, but any infrastructure shift is literally building the infrastructure itself. So building gas stations was a big thing to make sure that the car was actually viable as infrastructure, which don't get me started on what they did to public transit systems in this country, because that is so a subject for another day. But the point is. So it stands to reason that if you can uh, use existing infrastructure for a new tech, it makes implementing it, it just opens up all of the doors Correct. of possibility. And it saves a ton of money, which is the biggest reason that public good projects don't get done. Got it. Exactly. Now, one of the problems behind that, companies like AT&T um, and Time Warner and, and the cable companies... The existing investment that they have made into the infrastructure, they're not really excited about tearing that up and putting in new infrastructure, which is why cities increasingly are entering into the fray and saying, if you're not going to do it, then we're going to do it. And that is exactly what um, happened in my city of San Leandro, California. And like many cities who have to make this decision, it was an economic development decision. So the city of San Leandro has traditionally been a an, an manufacturing um, uh, city. And of course, in the 1980s, a lot of the manufacturing jobs went away. The city council was very wise in that it held on to the manufacturing uh, spaces 
They continue to zone it for manufacturing because now in the world of climate change and Internet of Things, um, industrial manufacturing is now coming back. It's all connected to technology. 3D printers and, it's all and digital, whatnot. But nevertheless... Yes, they kept the space for it, right? They, it, the battery, creating new b kinds of batteries, uh, battery storage, um, creating biotech and new ways of, for example, imagine being able to grow rice um, in salt water. And those kind of technologies take place in R&D spaces and industrial spaces because things Things right. are made. So these are the uh, typically hardware is made that is connected to the digital world. And, you know, we'll be talking a lot about that in the in the weeks to come. But San Leandro was really struggling because it had one major tech company, a company called OSIsoft, which was a major employer in the in the city. But it couldn't get and it was it, it had its technology. Um, which basically helped scrape data off of uh, utility lines or so utility companies like oil companies around the world. And they're present in 143 OSI countries. Their, their software, OSI soft, right. But it couldn't get fiber. So it was very limited in its ability to be able to access data around fiber? the world in real time. It couldn't get fiber because AT&T wouldn't ah. give it to him. So he basically approached the city and said, look, he, meaning Dr. Patrick Kennedy, the founder and CEO of OSIsoft at that time, approached the city and said, look, I know you have uh, fiber conduit, the copper, uh, under the streets. If you can, if there's any room in there, I'll just pull another 100, 256 strand of fiber, 256 strands of fiber, pull them under into that conduit connect my business, connect other businesses in the city. We're going to call it Lit San Leandro. And you know what? We're going to join the digital age. And that's exactly what San Leandro did. It created a public-private partnership that was able to not only uh, fulfill the, the promise of the 10 miles under the city, but ex eventually expanded with grant funding from the federal government to 20 miles around the city. So now the city has access to 10 gigabits per second. And when you say the city, who does that actually mean? Who in the city actually has access to this? Is it, are all San Leandrans living in a digitally connected utopia now? No, Me too. I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> there are many businesses connected, but just like the challenge with AT&T, um, Lit San Leandro is finding it difficult to be able to afford to be to, to, to run the fiber from the street to into the building when you only have, for example, in a manufacturing plant, maybe five to 10 users of that fiber, right? Because there's people on the floor. They're not necessarily, they're, they're using computers and stuff, but they're not necessarily accessing the internet. So they didn't, so quite often, has been the problem with AT&T, even our partners have not been able to make it pencil out to be able to connect to every business in San Leandro. Additionally, there are no residences connected. Well, that seems like a pretty significant caveat. Correct. So there are challenges to the public-private partnership model. 
Um, it's still being iterated to actually make sure that their citizens are able to get the kind of speeds that we know are necessary, not only for quality of life, because as we've found out in the past year, everybody's online. Everybody's online. Everybody's doing it. And we have to, right? For better or for worse. And then, um, and, and then businesses also ha- Every business has to have access to it. So we still haven't found the the financial model that connects people. Um, and it's very expensive because you have to understand this has to get buried deep into the ground. Because if you're digging up the streets for any reason, you don't want this to be dug for up. For those listening and not watching, she's waving her fiber stick at me very emphatically in a somewhat menacing manner, frankly. I love my fiber stick. So you're so basically we have not figured out how to make this equitable yet is what I'm hearing. Correct. So we can build what we call the middle mile. Right. So that's the that that's the fiber in the street, the conduit and then the fiber in the street. But it's getting to the it's the last mile, what we call the last mile connection from the street into the building that is proving to be the most problematic. Oh, that's a yeah. So that's where we are with infrastructure. And that is why the proposed infrastructure package contains a hundred billion dollars is proposing a hundred billion dollars to build broadband infrastructure. And the reason why it's important to understand there's a lot of different components to the broadband infrastructure, beginning with the backhaul of fiber optics is because the answer may be different if you're living in a rural area as opposed to an urban area. Yeah, that checks out. So it may be that satellite works best. It may be that 5G um, works best for some where the density is not is not really low density, but you've got moderate density and 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 not big locations between pockets of people. But that's why that's why we can't subscribe one particular broadband infrastructure for any one community. It's going to have to be a network. And we're going to go back to that. Broadband infrastructure is a network of telecommunications equipment and tech needed to provide high speed Internet access. So originally the idea was we were going to have on a guest and we are going to learn more about broadband infrastructure and public-private partnerships and really get into the nitty-gritty of all of that. But then we figured out how much there is to really sink our teeth into on this topic, even before we get to a guest. So the long story short, there will be a part two to this episode. We talk about uh, broadband infrastructure redux. And for the time being, what I'm really taking away from the conversation that we had today is the problem, and this is a tale as old as time in this country, that basically chokehold that the private companies that control so much of this company's infrastructure, and that is, we're talking about newer tech right now, but this includes things like oil companies and the auto manufacturers and things of that. The chokehold that they have over our legislation and that they have over the bodies, our governing bodies, and which our local governments and state governments and federal governments have often been complicit in, that is really where the biggest, that is the problem that we have to solve. It is not the tech. It's not that the tech doesn't exist as much. It's not that we don't have, we have the technology. The problem 
is when we have the prophets over people still. And the fact that so much of this is codified into law. And so to me, I guess the biggest takeaway here is that that that's where you I don't I'm not going to sit here and tell people I know how to fix that problem. But that's what the problem is to me. That utilities, which are essential for modern living, are controlled by private entities who look towards the profit bottom line rather than the triple bottom line of people, planet, and profits. And I agree with you, Anna, that's it's kind of an existential problem for the way um, our country is based on capitalism. Um, and it's not even capitalism at this point. It's something very different. Um, so yes, I think we can conclude that episode, this episode saying we're really glad our listeners have come along with us on this journey. Hope you've learned a lot, uh, a little bit more about how you connect to the internet and how important infrastructure really is for the health and well-being of individuals and our country as a whole. So on that note. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. I have been Anna Acosta with my co-host slash mother, Debbie Acosta. Stay tuned for future podcasts because we're going to be talking about blockchain. We're going to be talking about smart buildings. We're going to be talking about smart lighting. We're going to be talking about how you can secure your data so that other people can't get at it. Unless, of course, you really want them to get at it. These are the kinds of awesome things that we're going to be talking about in the weeks to come. So stay tuned. If you liked what you heard today or saw... Or if you didn't and are just feeling particularly giving, head on over to our Patreon, smash that subscribe, tell a friend, tell your cat. You know, that. I mean, you guys know how this part works, but we'd be very, very grateful if you checked it out. A whole bunch of bonus content, longer interviews, maybe even things like bloopers, you know, stuff that is a little more embarrassing. Hard to say. You'll only know if you subscribe. We're so happy to have you along for the ride, and we will be back next time to talk about other smart things. It's very, very exciting. <laughs> Bye.